Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. The Branch Davidians, the Ant Hill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexuality, drug addiction, and death. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In January 1958, sci-fi writer and religious leader L. Ron Hubbard gave a lecture discussing his youth. He focused on a trip he took to China. Hubbard said that during this journey, he met Major Ian McBain, a British spy. The two of them became friendly. According to Hubbard, McBain told him all about his impressive military and espionage career and the great philosophical traditions he'd studied. McBain appreciated the ancient wisdom of China and other parts of Asia. Hubbard took his message to heart. Hubbard later claimed he found spiritual and philosophical guidance from his own adventures abroad, and this wasn't the only quality he shared with McBain. According to a later statement by a spokesperson for Hubbard, he also became an undercover agent as an adult. Based on that account, he ran at least one undercover mission for naval intelligence. Yet there is one detail Hubbard probably didn't mention to the room full of people in 1958. About a decade later, an organization associated with the leader released a shocking statement. Apparently, one of Hubbard's missions was so successful that he contributed to the death of a group he believed posed a massive threat to the sovereignty of the United States, the Ordo Templi Orientis. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For the past two weeks, we've delved deep into the Ordo Templi Orientis. In our last episode, we met Jack Parsons, an occultist who hosted an OTO chapter in his home in Pasadena. Though Parsons was an accomplished rocket scientist, he rented out rooms in his mansion to cover the costs. And that was how he first befriended L. Ron Hubbard. This week, we'll wrap up our investigation into the Ordo Templi Orientis. We'll discuss why the order broke up, as well as Hubbard's role in its demise. We'll also explore the order's enduring legacy. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? Poltergeist activity? Do you believe in ghosts? 
malevolent entities? Are aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know. But what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story? Do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. L. Ron Hubbard was born in 1911 and grew up in Montana. His father, Harry Ross Hubbard, served with the U.S. Navy and was at one point stationed in Guam. When visiting his father as a teenager, Hubbard not only saw Guam, but also toured China and Japan. Years later, he claimed these intercontinental jaunts sparked a lifelong interest in religion and mysticism. Reportedly, Hubbard was fascinated by Eastern philosophy. On his travels, he visited houses of worship and witnessed miracles that defied scientific explanation. These experiences convinced Hubbard there was more to the world than met the eye. He wanted to learn more, but no matter where he turned, Hubbard never found any satisfying answers. In 1941, he had an opportunity to explore the world again when, at 30 years old, he joined the U.S. Naval Reserve to serve in World War II as a lieutenant. During his service, Hubbard may have had access to certain military secrets. In fact, years later, representatives for Hubbard's organization suggested Hubbard's service involved sensitive undercover missions. In a 1969 statement in the Sunday Times, a spokesperson for Hubbard claimed he was a spy, even during the end of the war. And according to this version of events, that was the reason the 34-year-old ended up in Pasadena, California in 1945. According to several scholars, however, Hubbard's introduction to the OTO was more casual. In August 1945, while Hubbard was on leave from the Navy, he showed up at 1003 South Orange Grove Avenue with a science fiction writer friend, Lou Goldstone. Lou thought that Hubbard and Jack Parsons would like each other, and he was right. The rocket scientist and occultist Parsons became fast friends with Hubbard and invited him to stay in his house. Hubbard soon learned that this rambling old mansion in Pasadena was the so-called Parsonage, the headquarters of the Ordo Templi Orientis' California chapter, the Agape Lodge. It's unclear if Hubbard knew about the OTO before he met Jack Parsons, but he was certainly introduced to the Order's magical beliefs once he was living under Parsons' roof. But years later, Hubbard told a version of the story that played out very differently. The author didn't publicly talk about his time with the OTO until well after the fact, but in 1969, a religious organization led by Hubbard released a statement on his behalf. In part, it read, L. Ron Hubbard was still an officer of the U.S. Navy. Because he was well known as a writer and a philosopher, and had friends amongst the physicists, he was sent in to handle the situation. He went to live at the house and investigated the black magic rites and the general situation, and found them very bad. 
Hubbard's mission was successful far beyond anyone's expectations. We don't know if the government really was concerned about this or if they even knew about the issue, but it's possible that Parsons was recruiting his co-workers from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory into the OTO. He was an aggressive evangelist for the order and conceivably could have invited his colleagues to check out the group too. So, according to Hubbard, his mission was to identify the OTO's leaders and break up the cult. Before we go on, we should note that in the statement released by Hubbard's religious organization, some of the details were wrong. For example, it claimed the Agape Lodge was at a different address on Orange Grove Avenue. It also says that Parsons had a different title within the OTO. It even got the order's name incorrect. It called them the Order of Templars Orientalis. That's close to Ordo Templi Orientis, but not exactly right. Scholar Massimo Intervenier has pointed out that these details are just that, details. And since Hubbard wrote his account well after the fact, it's not that surprising that he'd misremember an address, a title, or an obscure Latin phrase. The crux of his account could still be true. Except there's no official record of a naval intelligence mission to break up the order, at least nothing that's been declassified. Whatever Hubbard's initial reasons, one thing is clear. In 1945, he became part of the OTO's inner circle. By and large, the other residents of the parsonage found him charming. That became something of a controversy, because the outer head of the order, Alistair Crowley, took a dislike to him. The self-styled beast likely never met Hubbard in person. He was still living in England when Hubbard moved to the California parsonage. But based on what he would read in letters from OTO members, Crowley became convinced that Hubbard was a liar and a fraud. Other initiates became suspicious, too. One man, Neeson Himmel, said, quote, I can't stand phonies, and he was so obviously a phony. But he was not a dummy. He could charm anybody. Another, Jack Williamson, noted that he barely trusted anything that came out of Hubbard's mouth. But Hubbard didn't need their approval to get close to Jack Parsons, or Parsons' girlfriend. As a reminder, according to some accounts, Parsons started a relationship with his wife's underage sister, Sarah Northrup, who went by the nickname Betty. By the time Hubbard joined the OTO in 1945, Parsons and Betty were 30 and 21, respectively. They were still together and shared an open relationship, which was the norm for order members in Parsons' group. When they met, Betty and 34-year-old Hubbard hit it off right away. After they became romantically involved, Betty made it very clear she wasn't interested in Parsons anymore. In the last episode, we explored the possibility that Parsons felt he had to repress his jealousy. He may have believed he couldn't express emotions that ran counter to the Order's values given his status at the Agape Lodge. But while he liked to act like he wasn't possessive, those sentiments were still churning deep inside him. Parsons had to do something about them. In December 1945, a resident of the parsonage named Alva Rogers woke up in the middle of the night to strange noises coming from the master bedroom, which doubled as a temple. It sounded like someone was seriously sick or hurt. Alva woke his girlfriend and the two of them crept toward the room across the hall. When they got closer, they realized they weren't hearing sounds of pain at all. It was ritual chanting. Clearly, someone was casting a spell in Parsons' room. Alva and his girlfriend weren't sure what to do about it. They weren't allowed inside without an explicit invitation, but they were mesmerized. 
Eventually, Alva worked up the courage to push the door open. The couple peeked inside. They saw Parsons standing in front of an altar, wreathed in thick incense smoke. He wore a black robe and straddled a pentagram displayed on the floor. His arms were stretched in a T-pose. The sight was a bit too much, even for residents of the parsonage. They'd performed ritual sex magic and had reportedly made a pregnant woman jump through fires before. But this felt more intimate. Alva sensed he'd invaded at a vulnerable moment. He'd seen something Parsons never intended anyone to witness. The couple quietly backed away and shut the door before Parsons could spot them. Afterwards, they whispered about what he was trying to accomplish. Alva believed the secret nighttime spell had something to do with Parsons' distrust of Hubbard. He thought that Parsons might have been summoning a demon to attack Hubbard and thereby eliminate his romantic rival. If that was the case, it didn't work because Hubbard stuck around. Parsons' diary entries from this time suggested he was tormented by jealousy. Perhaps the ritual was meant to rid him of negative emotions he didn't want to feel anymore. He wrote, I have been suffered to pass through an ordeal of human love and jealousy. I have found a staunch companion and comrade in Ron. Ron and I are to continue with our plans for the Order. And Parsons had a plan for the new initiate, L. Ron Hubbard, one that he hoped would culminate with the two of them summoning the Antichrist. Coming up, Parsons executes a magical plot. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. On behalf of ParCast, I'd like to thank you for your continued support. Your loyalty has allowed us to keep expanding even beyond podcasts. That's why I'm so thrilled to share some special news with you all, something we've never done before and made possible only because of you. On July 12th, we're releasing our first book titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. Those of you who've been with ParCast since the beginning know that it's a labor of love for us to bring you these powerful stories. As long as you keep listening, we keep creating. So with the benefit of years of research and insights, we've put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. You won't want to miss this book. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. Thank you again for listening. We can't wait for you to dive in. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Now, back to the story. In 1945, 34-year-old author and U.S. Navy member L. Ron Hubbard showed up at Jack Parsons' front door. We know that Hubbard was there in need of a place to stay when not on active duty. But at least according to the statement from his spokesperson released years later, he was really seeking to break up the group as part of a naval intelligence mission. 
In time, Parsons grew to trust Hubbard as a dear friend. It likely helped that the rocket scientist believed Hubbard had an advanced understanding of magic. As Parsons explained in a letter to Alistair Crowley, although he has no formal training in magic, he has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. From some of his experiences, I deduced that he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. Parsons took this as a sign of Hubbard's inherent mystical skill. So Parsons decided to collaborate with his new resident on a personal but very important project, something called the Babylon Working. This seems to have been his attempt to fulfill an old OTO prophecy about Babylon and the Moonchild. We discussed this back in our episode on Aleister Crowley, who served as a mentor to Parsons. To recap, Crowley predicted the Beast would have sex with a scarlet woman. Their union would produce a moon child, a strange being who wasn't entirely human, who, in Crowley's words, possessed intellect and power of speech, but was not inhabited by a human soul. The creature would also be known as the Antichrist and would change the course of human history, destroying Christianity's dominance in mainstream society. Crowley called himself the Beast, and naturally he believed it was his destiny to father the Moonchild. He referred to his wife and many of his girlfriends as his Scarlet Woman. But though he fathered several children, he never fulfilled his prophecy. By January 1946, Crowley was 70 years old and very ill. He wasn't in any condition to perform sex magic rituals. But his disciple, Jack Parsons, thought he might be able to step into Crowley's shoes. Now that his ex-girlfriend, Betty Northrup, had left him for Hubbard, he searched for a superior lover, someone who could fulfill the prophecy, a woman who wasn't even human. He wanted an elemental. In many occult traditions, elementals are nature spirits often associated with the earth, air, fire, or water. Parsons' plan involved invoking an elemental of the Whore of Babylon from the Book of Revelation, also known as the Scarlet Woman then magically creating a physical body for her. In other words, Parsons wanted to invoke the Scarlet Woman into reality. But she wouldn't be the dangerous character from the Book of Revelation. Parsons saw her as a force of nature who represented love, understanding, and Dionysian freedom. After that, Parsons and the woman would perform sex magic together to conceive the moon child. This child would be the Antichrist, and her union with Parsons would ring in a new era of mystical spirituality. Parsons began his work to invoke the elemental on January 4, 1946, and he wasn't alone. Another initiate joined him for the rituals, an individual who Parsons called his magical partner or the scribe, and he described the rituals in graphic detail in his diaries. On January 4, 1946, Parsons traced pentagrams in the air over a dagger, a tablet, and a talisman. He chanted and masturbated onto the tablet. Meanwhile, Parsons' account suggests his magical helper watched the ritual, and as his scribe, took notes on what occurred. He repeated the spell the next night, January 5th, and supposedly received a divine sign he was on the right track. Midway through the spell, Parsons heard the wind whip up. It was as if he'd called a spirit of the air to him. But that didn't mean the spell was complete. A windstorm raged on and off all through the next day. It seemed connected to the ritual. For 11 days in a row, Parsons performed the rite. Some days he did it more than once. A few times, windstorms kicked up during the invocations. 
Then, on the 14th, around 9 p.m., the power went out. A resident lit a candle while he walked through the dark house. When he reached the kitchen, he felt something punch him on the right shoulder, even though he was totally alone. The blow was hard enough that he dropped the candle. He couldn't move his arm for the rest of the night. The resident reported what happened to Parsons, who rushed to the kitchen just in time to see a brownish-yellow light hovering near the ceiling. It seemed the invocations had called something, but this wasn't the spirit Parsons wanted to summon. He reportedly used a magic sword to banish the spirit. The incident didn't discourage Parsons. After all, he had been partially successful. The incantations continued. On January 15th, Parsons performed the ritual a final time. During the working, his magical helper saw a vision. It featured an old acquaintance of Parsons. It was someone the scribe had never met, but Parsons immediately recognized their description. The scribe went on to discuss the Egyptian goddess Isis and the Archangel Michael, both of whom were apparently watching over Parsons' work. It was a good sign. When the ritual ended, Parsons could feel an expectant energy in the air. The atmosphere thrummed with tension. Even the other tenants at the parsonage sensed it. When he prepared to go to bed for the night, Parsons heard a pounding sound, like someone was knocking on his door. Then a strange, metallic voice cried, Let me go free. Parsons was so close, but he had no idea what to do next. For four days, psychic pressure permeated the house. Parsons racked his brain to figure out how to make the elemental flesh. By January 18th, the feeling of anticipation was too much to bear. Parsons and his magical helper drove all the way out to the Mojave Desert, roughly 200 miles from Pasadena. They were on a magical mission, though what they did exactly is unclear. They just needed a break from the thrumming tension. But the feeling followed them, at least for a few hours. At sunset, Parsons said he felt the tension suddenly break. A sense of certainty washed over him. He turned to his helper and breathed, It is done. As soon as they made it back home, Parsons met his scarlet woman in person. Parsons introduced himself to 23-year-old Marjorie Cameron, an up-and-coming artist who'd recently moved into the parsonage. It was the first time she and Parsons met face-to-face, and the timing lined up perfectly with the completion of the ritual. Parsons was supposed to romance an elemental, and here was a young, beautiful woman who seemed interested in him right in his house. Most importantly, Cameron had vivid red hair, hair that might suggest she deserved the nickname, The Scarlet Woman. Parsons was convinced the moment he met Cameron, she was the fulfillment of the prophecy, the embodiment of all his work. So almost immediately, Parsons and Cameron began practicing sex magic. They performed various rituals for the next two weeks. During that time, Parsons educated Cameron on OTO teachings, letter and magic incantations, and of course, tried to summon Babylon. Sure enough, Cameron announced she was pregnant with Parsons' child soon afterward. She believed it was conceived during those rituals, though she was unaware of the significance of the Babylon working at the time. And Cameron didn't want to be a mother then. She had an abortion. Although he longed for a moon child, Parsons supported Cameron's decision to terminate the pregnancy. This may mean, as authors John Carter and Robert Anton Wilson argue, that Parsons' idea of a moon child wasn't about a literal baby being born. Carter and Wilson speculate that Parsons expected to summon Babylon as a full-grown adult woman. 
After all, his earlier spells had apparently summoned Cameron to his door. That said, Parsons had no idea how exactly Babylon would arrive, but in the meantime, he encountered some resistance to his plans. Some of his fellow magicians weren't fully convinced he could incarnate the Antichrist. Crowley wrote to Parsons, warning him it was dangerous to love elementals. But Parsons wouldn't be deterred. Maybe he should have been more concerned. There was a threat in the Agape Lodge. It just wasn't Cameron or an elemental. It was L. Ron Hubbard. Allegedly, he was still undercover, working to bring down the OTO on behalf of naval intelligence. This may be why he and his girlfriend, Betty Northrup, decided to go into business with Parsons, a decision that would completely destroy the community at the Parsonage. Coming up, Hubbard and Parsons clash. Now back to the story. In early 1946, Hubbard, Betty, and Parsons decided to go into business together. They formed a company called Allied Enterprises, which would be a catch-all for whatever pursuits they might become interested in in the future. Supposedly, yachts were cheaper on the East Coast than they were in California. To get started, Allied Enterprises needed seed money, so Parsons contributed his savings to the endeavor, nearly $21,000. Hubbard contributed just over $1,000, and Betty had nothing to give. For context, Parsons' contribution was about four times the average cost of a house in America in 1946. Then, a few months later, Hubbard proposed that he and Betty get the ball rolling. They took at least $10,000 of Allied Enterprises' money and went to Florida, where they could buy boats at a discount. From there, they told Parsons they'd transport the boats to California and sell them at a profit. In April, Betty and Hubbard made their journey east. But then weeks passed, and Parsons didn't hear a word from them. He was starting to get nervous, and Alistair Crowley was also growing suspicious. The beast was still overseas, but he'd read about the yacht enterprise from other members of the OTO. His gut told him Parsons had made a major mistake in handing over so much money to Hubbard and Betty. In May 1946, Crowley wrote a letter to an OTO member. He called Betty and Hubbard prowling swindlers. He was equally vicious toward Parsons, who he described as a weak fool. In spite of the criticism, Parsons stood by Hubbard, at least for a while. But by June, his friend and former lover had both been gone for months. Parsons hadn't heard of any plans to get the yachts back to him. It seemed like the two really had taken his money and run. In July, Parsons resolved to get to the bottom of the matter. He traveled to Florida to investigate. But he arrived too late. After questioning a few local harbor workers, Parsons learned Hubbard and Betty had bought three yachts, but they were nowhere to be found. Parsons couldn't tell whether the couple was on their way back to California to deliver the boat or if they were on the run. Still suspicious, he found a room near one of the harbors and waited. But he wasn't content to simply wait. When he received a call that one of the boats had been taken out to sea by Hubbard and Betty, he set to work. In his hotel room, he performed a quick magical ritual around 8 p.m. Apparently, it worked. Around that same time, a storm picked up at sea. Heavy winds ripped the sails off Hubbard and Betty's yacht, making it impossible for the couple to sail any further. A short while later, the Coast Guard rescued the couple and dragged them back to shore. His friends had returned to port. Parsons sued Hubbard and Betty in early July. Within two weeks, the agreement for Allied Enterprises was dissolved. 
and a court presumably heard testimony about the company and each person's role in it. Or at least they heard part of the story. As a reminder, there's some reports that say Hubbard's girlfriend, Betty Northrup, first slept with Jack Parsons when she was underage. According to George Pendle, author of a biography on Parsons, it's possible that Betty threatened to press charges against him for their past relationship. If this was the tactic, it was effective. After dissolving their company, Parsons declined to press further charges against Hubbard and Betty. Parsons was given two of the boats, and Hubbard kept one of them. He also had to pay some of Parsons' legal fees and take on a $2,900 promissory note. Needless to say, the settlement marked the end of Parsons and Hubbard's friendship. But until his death, Hubbard and his later spokespeople would insist he didn't do anything wrong. They argued that Hubbard was falsely accused and never ripped Parsons off. But many of Parsons' OTO associates, including Alistair Crowley, thought Hubbard and Betty had taken the rocket scientist for all he was worth. Hubbard may be the only person who knew for sure what really happened. As you may have noticed, there are a lot of unverifiable details in L. Ron Hubbard's biography. While he is a famous figure, much of his renown came after he left the OTO, so some events are difficult to pin down. But following the boat incident, Hubbard reportedly completed his naval intelligence mission. According to the statement later offered by his associates, Hubbard had identified the order's leaders and rescued Betty from the cult's clutches. It's unclear, however, exactly what she needed rescuing from. The statement said, Hubbard's mission was successful far beyond anyone's expectations. The house was torn down. Hubbard rescued a girl they were using. It didn't elaborate on how this girl was used. In addition, the statement claimed his undercover OTO mission helped him expose many scientists as security risks. Thus, he dismantled a major threat to the national security of the United States. However, as we noted before, there's no official record of any of this. We do know Hubbard and Betty were married on August 10, 1946. However, as Massimo Intervigne points out for his article in the Journal of Chesner, their marriage may not have been valid. Hubbard had been married before, and he didn't officially divorce his wife until 1947. In the meantime, Betty and Hubbard continued their relationship and had a red-haired daughter. After a few years, they split up, and their separation was widely publicized through bitter accusations in the press. According to research by author Russell Miller, they accused each other of heinous actions. Betty would later sign a statement in 1951 retracting all of her allegations against Hubbard. It began, I, Sarah Northrop Hubbard, do hereby state that the things I have said about L. Ron Hubbard in courts and the public prints have been grossly exaggerated or entirely false. Although the relationship didn't work out, Hubbard's career took off after he left the OTO. He wrote several best-selling texts and became a household name. He also deepened his relationship with spirituality, leading to his rise as a globally recognized religious leader. Meanwhile, Parsons had the opposite trajectory. His fallout with Hubbard left him broken and disillusioned. Not only had he squandered his money, he also lost a trusted friend. About a month after the yacht disagreement, on August 20, 1946, Parsons formally resigned from the order. Soon afterward, he sold the parsonage. By that point, the building was so run down that the new owners had it demolished. In the following years, Parsons continued to explore mysticism outside the OTO, and he continued writing to Crowley. But the dynamics had changed. 
Parsons had also grown distant from his scarlet woman, Marjorie Cameron. Although they married in October 1946, she became bored with her domestic life in California. The spark just wasn't there anymore. And Parsons wasn't the only magician struggling. By 1947, Crowley's health was at an all-time low. Years of dabbling with drugs left him addicted to heroin. He used it daily. Aside from that, he was 72 years old and very ill. He was in so much pain that his caretakers hoped he'd die soon, so his suffering would end. On December 1st, 1947, the beast finally breathed his last. He died in relative obscurity. By and large, the world had forgotten him, and the newspapers that bothered to run obituaries were cruel, calling him awful, the world's worst man, and a rascal in headlines. It's likely Parsons mourned his former mentor, but before long, he had to shift his focus. Even after he cut ties with the Order, he had to account for his unusual social life and his connections to an alleged Communist Party member. Around 1948, U.S. officials started investigating 34-year-old Parsons to see if he should lose his security clearance to work on government projects. They found a lot of questionable information about him. It's not surprising that Parsons was targeted, as many of his old friends were communist and he had attended Communist Party meetings before the war, though he had never joined. Parsons denied the allegation and worried about what it would mean for his work. The case against Parsons didn't look good. Later in 1948, he lost his security clearance and subsequently his job. A month later, Cameron left him. She moved to Mexico to live with other artists and took on many new lovers. Unemployed and alone, Parsons supported himself with odd jobs. Luckily, a year later, his security clearance was restored, and he began a new job for an aviation company. But it didn't last long. He was fired that fall, and amidst a growing hysteria about communist spies, was investigated by the FBI yet again. While he attempted to lay low, Cameron returned from Mexico and the couple got back together, moving into a small coach house not far from where the parsonage once stood. He was forced to support himself the same way he always had, with rocket science. He built things like explosives and special effects for local film crews. In his laboratory, he mixed volatile chemicals and prepped bombs. It was a risky business, though it seemed easy for a genius like Parsons. But even geniuses make mistakes. On July 17, 1952, 37-year-old Jack Parsons was mixing chemicals in his home. It was a rush order from a special effects company, and he was hurrying to finish it before he and Cameron left for a trip. With most of his supplies already packed, he used a tin coffee can to mix the dangerous chemicals, including, it seems, fulminate of mercury. To be clear, this was not standard practice when dealing with mercury. The chemical is a highly volatile explosive and should be handled with care. At 5.08 p.m., the coffee tin slipped. As it plummeted downward, Parsons extended his right arm to catch it. But he didn't move fast enough. The tin hit the ground and exploded. The resulting blast ripped the home apart and shattered his neighbor's windows. Witnesses heard it from two miles away. 
Astoundingly, Parsons survived the eruption, but he was severely injured. One arm was completely blown off, as was all the skin on one side of his face. His leg bones were broken. Although he couldn't speak, his neighbors found him in the rubble and called an ambulance. He died in the hospital at 5.45 p.m., just over a half hour after the explosion. Following his death, conspiracy theories emerged. Many couldn't believe Parsons had made such a simple and deadly mistake. Some alleged he intentionally dropped the mercury to take his own life. Others suggested he was murdered, but there's no hard evidence to back these allegations up. Whatever the cause, his death marked the end of an era. The OTO had already been on the decline since Hubbard's arrival. With Parsons and Crowley dead and Hubbard a defector, the group lacked direction. The few remaining members had to go elsewhere. Marjorie Cameron continued her experiments in magic and became famous as an occultist and avant-garde artist. Other OTO members settled into lives of obscurity, moved on from magic entirely, or passed away. By the 1960s, the movement had few members and little social reach. But that wasn't the end of the story. As the OTO of Crowley and Parsons faded out, the hippie movement hit the mainstream. Suddenly, young people throughout the Western world were embracing free love and mysticism. They were also growing skeptical of traditional religion. A brand new generation discovered Aleister Crowley and his values. But this time, some of the principles of the Lima weren't taught in secluded temples or whispered about in secretive rituals. They were shared freely. Counterculturalists across the globe experimented with psychedelic drugs to achieve enlightenment, just like Crowley. Some sought enlightenment through meditation, also a former order practice. And many turned their backs on traditional Christianity, just as the beast always hoped they would. These people didn't line up to be initiated or rise through the ranks of a secretive order. Instead, the order's secret way of life became public. Its principles were part of the mainstream. To the best of our knowledge, the goddess Babylon never did become incarnate in the flesh. But otherwise, Crowley and Parsons' prophecy was fulfilled in a way. The world really did wake up to a new, mystical way of life. Today, Jack Parsons and Aleister Crowley may no longer be household names, but their influence is immeasurable. There are even OTO lodges that are opening and functioning, and interested spiritual seekers can apply to join, attend public events, or listen to their podcasts. Perhaps the wild narrative of Aleister Crowley, Jack Parsons, and L. Ron Hubbard was exactly what was meant to happen. Maybe the world we're all living in is just an extension of their will. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next time with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Angela Jorgensen, edited by Robert Tyler Walker, with fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 
Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. Exciting news. ParCast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com slash cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.